Thank you for leading us in prayer, Simone. I really appreciate it. Well, good morning again. Uh, we continue our series in the book of Philippians, and uh, as we think about the passage that we're going to come to today, I just wanted to start with this, this adage, right? Um, more is caught than taught. Uh, Perhaps not an absolute truth, but a general truth, right? More is caught than taught. It's important to receive instruction, but it's powerful to see the principles of that instruction fleshed out in real life, in real life people. Most children learn virtually everything from watching their parents, their siblings, their caregivers, teachers, other people in their lives, from everything from gross motor movements to speech, to, to how to interact and play, and it doesn't stop with children. Uh, it continues on throughout our entire life. It applies to all areas of life, from school to work to social situations, and it's no different in our spiritual lives. I've learned to read my Bible and pray and share my faith from watching mentors do it over the years. I'm constantly learning from various ones of you as we do life and, and ministry together here at GRC. And so we absolutely need good biblical teaching. That's, that's central to everything we want to be about as a church. But we also need good examples of people who are putting that teaching into practice. And that's what our passage is about today. Paul has given us a lot of wonderful instruction already in these first two chapters of the book of Philippians. Uh, he's told us essentially what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel because he wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to love one another well as a community, to be unified, to value others above ourselves. And, and he wants us to strive together for the mission of the church in the world, the mission of the gospel in the world. And he's encouraged us that that's possible, not in our own strength, right? That's possible because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to continue it until Jesus comes again. Furthermore, as we work out our salvation in this way, God is working in us to help us desire that, to, to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so with this instruction, we come to chapter 2, verse 19. And, and it reads, as you'll see in a moment, like a travel itinerary. You know, Paul is writing to the Philippian church about what he's going to do and send people to see them. Um, it, it, uh, it feels like we're overhearing somebody's logistical planning. And we may wonder what it has to do with us. We may be tempted to just kind of skim over that and get to the next set of, of instructions. But if we read a little closer, we'll see that Paul is sending them two godly examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's sending them back to the Philippian church. These are men who embody the very things he's been instructing them about. And so if you're able, let's stand together and read God's word. Uh, this is Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. This is God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you not only for Paul and his teaching and his example, not only for Jesus, Lord, but that Paul and, and, and Timothy and Epaphroditus and mentors in our own lives, Lord, can imitate these saints as they imitate you. And so, Lord, teach us from your word today, from their example, from Paul's example. Lord, not so that we just try harder to be like somebody else, but so that we can see the principles of the kingdom lived out in their lives and how they might be lived out in our own. We give you thanks for this time. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the principle behind the sermon today is, is Paul's admonition in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 17, uh, where he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And so this morning, I want to just simply talk through this passage, just kind of walk through it and hit some of the high points and draw out some of the principles that will help us in our own journeys with Christ. And as we get started, again, just some brief context, some quick background. Remember that Paul is writing from prison. Uh, he's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's been arrested because he's a Christian, and he's awaiting trial before the emperor. And when the Philippian church heard about this, they were concerned, and they, uh, they wanted to support him to send money to help with his expenses while he's there under house arrest. And Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi, and they sent him to deliver this gift to Paul. And Epaphroditus was also able to fill Paul in on what was happening in the church, and that made Paul want to send people back to them, to, to minister to them, and to encourage them through some of the issues that they were dealing with. He eventually wanted to send his trusted missionary partner, Timothy, to minister to them. Timothy had worked with Paul for a while. Timothy knew that church well, but Paul couldn't spare him immediately. Paul was awaiting his own trial and he needed Timothy to stay with him until he knew what would happen to him after his trial. And then once that was resolved, Paul would send him and, and hopefully Paul himself would come back to the Philippian church. In the meantime, he wanted to address the issues that were going on in the church that he had heard about from Epaphroditus. And so he wrote this letter and he was going to have Epaphroditus deliver it back to them when he went home. And so let's, let's jump into verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. 
Now, it's important to notice, I think, that the first reason that Paul gives for sending someone to them is so that Paul can be brought up to speed about them. Now, think about that. Paul is potentially facing the death penalty. He has his own issues. He has his own challenges and burdens. He's got his own ministry right there in Rome. Paul's in prison. He's facing this prospect of execution as he's under house arrest. And, and these Philippians were concerned about him. And so they had sent, uh, sent their help. Paul appreciated their help immensely. But his first concern was their own situation, their own spiritual condition. And, and this is a concrete example of what he had just told us earlier in the chapter, in verses three and four, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul was concerned about them, even as he is in prison. But this ideal doesn't just characterize Paul, it's true of Timothy as well. Paul explains in verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul taught earlier in the letter that all Christians should prioritize others, be committed to see the gospel go forward. There should have been any number of Christians in the Roman church that Paul could have dispatched to the Philippians, but for whatever reason, Paul himself says, no one was willing. They all seek their own interests, not what matters to Jesus. And Paul, I don't think, is talking about people who have rejected the faith, but people that he considered to be believers and even fellow workers with him in ministry. Paul's assessment um, is, is that they put their own interests above those of Jesus, their Lord, who had sacrificially served them. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, points out that it's likely not the case, not the case, that they were exclusively focused on their own interests. They, that they weren't involved in any ministry at all. Otherwise, Paul probably wouldn't have even referred to them. He wouldn't have expected them to do anything, right? So they're engaged in the ministry. Uh, they're, they're not only focusing on their own interests. More likely, Calvin surmises, because they were overly concerned with their own interests, they served Christ in a superficial way. In other words, hear this, they appreciated their faith. It was important to them personally but it wasn't something that shaped their priorities. And so they weren't willing to inconvenience themselves, to step out of their comfort zone in God's mission for others. How do you respond to that? Is that true of you? Is it true of me? It's one thing for us to hear biblical instruction about community and about God's mission. It's another thing to actually live that way, isn't it? It's easy for it to go in one ear and out the other until we see people who are actually living it out. We see examples like the Philippians saw in Paul and Timothy and, and it makes it more plausible that maybe, just maybe, God actually expects us to live this way because we see specific people actually living this way. When we see examples like these men, God uh, shows us that he 
he does truly want us to find our lives by losing them for Jesus and the sake of the gospel. So, first principle I want to mention today, Christ's sacrificial mission for us should motivate us to sacrificially prioritize his mission for others. That's what Paul's been talking about this whole chapter. Um, We've already seen over and over in this chapter, and, and the first one, how Jesus left everything to save us. Right? He, he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross for us. We've seen how God is utterly committed to working in our lives. He's begun a good work in us. He'll complete a good work in us. As we work out our salvation, he's working in us to make that possible. And so are we content to come to worship, to be involved in church ministries, maybe primarily for the blessing that it gives to us, the encouragement that it gives to us, or do we think of ourselves as missionaries of sorts, as as sent by Jesus to a world that he loves, ministering both to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to those who don't yet know him, also to those who are hurting and lonely and broken. How should that affect the way we spend our time? Who we spend our time with and for what purpose? How should it affect the way we think about stewarding the resources that God has given us in order to see other people hear the gospel? Paul has already given us his own example and Jesus' example of living this way. It's true of Timothy also. And by God's grace and God's power, may it be true of us as well of you and of me. But there was a reason it was true of Timothy. It didn't just happen. Uh, Look at verse 22. He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. What's going on here? Uh, Paul describes his relationship with Timothy as as a father and a son. Timothy, like a son, learned by serving alongside his dad. Paul, Paul is not simply saying that he really likes Timothy like a dad loves his son. Paul is giving us a glimpse to his approach of making disciples. In the Roman culture of that day, which shaped the Philippians, after a child was weaned, he, he, mostly he was, was given to a guardian until he's 12 years old. And this guardian, this, this pedagogue, literally, would be hired to teach logic and writing and reading and arithmetic. He taught them school, took care of them. And at age 12, they would transition back to their parents. Boys would work with their dad, learning the family trade. You know, girls would work alongside their moms to manage the household. They would essentially apprenticeship with their parents until they learned everything there was to know about the trade or how to run the household. A pedagogue would pass on information. The parent would model how to apply that theory into actual daily living. And a lot of times I think that uh, we can make I think a lot of times we think that we can make mature and equipped disciples of Jesus simply by passing on information, you know, a good teaching like a pedagogue. But that's not how Jesus or the apostles or Paul 
made disciples. So the second principle this morning is discipleship happens best life on life. It happens best life on life. We need concrete, tangible examples of people seeking to follow Jesus themselves and seeking to join God in his mission. We need concrete examples of people who are interacting with us over the truth of God's word and kind of working it into our hearts and our souls and the way we live our lives. We'll never be a perfect example, but we can all be a living example, an actual, real, tangible example of someone seeking to follow Jesus. And so as we make disciples, we need to invite others into our lives so that they can see how we're trying to put the truth of God's word into actual practice. You know, one of the times of the, the, the greatest spiritual growth in my own life was during college. I was involved in a campus ministry, and one of the full-time staff members there was discipling me for three of those four years. And uh, during my sophomore year, I was looking to move off campus into an apartment, and this man, Dave, uh, invited me to, to live with him, to, to live with him in an apartment with another roommate, the three of us. And the impact he made on me during that year was deeper than the other times when I would just kind of occasionally meet him, right? It went far beyond the Bible studies he led. Those were important. But I got to see how he lived. I got to see the daily rhythms of his life, how he sought to exercise and spend time in God's word and go to work and rest, how he fought temptation. Um, he wasn't perfect, of course, but, but I learned a ton from him as I got to see his life up close. You know, that's kind of unrealistic to move in with somebody now that I have three kids and, heaven forbid, three cats and, uh, and a wife. But after I was married, Carissa and I were living in Orlando, and our pastor and his wife just simply extended hospitality. They just opened their home to us. We spent a ton of time just hanging out with them, seeing how they related to their kids. Uh, we laughed, we shared life, we had all kinds of formative conversations that weren't official ministry, but they were the, the grist of life. Parents, you have the opportunity to disciple your kids that way for, for 18 years, heck, maybe 25 these days, right? Um, make the most of the time, model all aspects of the Christian life for them, personal devotions, how you make decisions that honor Christ, how you engage in church, how you go to work, how you serve others, how you share the gospel. They need to see it lived out in your life. Here's the deal, though. What's the major objection? We're busy, right? We don't have time for this. But if God's word still applies to us today, and it does, then we have to figure out how to live this stuff out, right? Uh, we don't get to just say, sorry, Jesus, I'm not going to put into place the things you tell me to do the way you tell me to live my life because I'm just too busy. I've got other priorities. We, we actually have to figure out how sharing our lives in this way actually works for us in 2022 uh, in, in, in Jersey or wherever we live. This has implications for how we think of church. Right? Don't think of church as a, as a service to attend or meetings or programs, certainly not as a building. Right? Think of church biblically as, as the people of God in community with one another and on God's mission together. 
Use the groups, the meetings, the more organized activities of the church as springboards, as launching pads to connect outside those times as well, as, as uh, just kind of on-ramps into actual life-on-life community with one another. What do you like to do? How might you do that with other people and just be intentional about inviting people into what you're doing? Maybe it's biking or walking or going to the gym or a service project. Maybe it's just meeting for a meal you like to eat out. Maybe it's inviting a young adult or someone in one of your groups to come with you as you watch your kids' games or events. How can you do life with other people in a way that creates space for conversation and relationship to actually happen? So the second principle is that discipleship happens best life on life. Paul and Timothy, it's important to understand, I think, were very different people, very different temperaments. Paul was your classic, I think, type A risk taker, right? He, he, was, uh, he was driven. Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Timothy somewhat, uh, seems somewhat timid or quiet, maybe more of one of those support people. Nevertheless, Paul describes Timothy in verse 20 by saying, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him. A more literal translation would be, I have no one else of kindred spirit, Um, The word in the Greek that's translated like him in the NIV means like-minded. It means equal in soul. Paul is saying that Timothy, though he's very different from Paul, in many ways shares Paul's genuine concern for the Philippian church, their welfare. Why? Well, because Timothy learned from Paul. Like a son who's been apprenticed to his father, Paul's character, Paul's vision, Paul's passion, his priorities rubbed off on Timothy. He was not only taught it, he was, but he also caught it. And so if we want to make mature and equipped followers of Jesus, we can't expect to just simply show up to services, um, show up to classes. Those are important, but they're not enough. We have to share our lives with one another in meaningful ways. Well, let's move on and consider the example of Epaphroditus. Look at at verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Paul describes Epaphroditus as a brother, another believer in Christ, someone who is united to Paul by common faith in Christ. He describes him as a fellow worker more than a brother, He has worked alongside Paul in the ministry, and as such, he's a fellow soldier, fighting alongside Paul in the spiritual battle. Principle three, missional significance requires engaging in the spiritual battle, engaging in a spiritual battle. If you're engaged in a meaningful way in ministry, don't be naive. Um, Expect a fight. There's a spiritual enemy. He will not be pleased with your activity. Nevertheless, I always find it interesting that Jesus describes his mission in in Matthew 16 to build his church. He describes that in terms of a siege. But it's not the kind of siege we might think. Sometimes I think we feel like we're hunkered down in the castle and we're being sieged by, by the enemy. But that's not what Jesus describes He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church is pictured here as laying siege to the devil's stronghold. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of the gospel through the witness of God's people. It implies that we're on the offensive in the spiritual battle. And I think an implication of this is as long as you keep yourself safe and comfortable and insulated within your own comfort zone, your own Christian friends, you're not a threat. The devil's not infinite. He's finite. He's a limited resource. Satan may mess with you a bit here, a bit there, but he's not all that concerned about you. Why? Why, why kick the hornet's nest? Just leave you be. And you probably won't experience much transformation. You probably won't see much fruit from ministry. But as soon as you advance out of the safety of the castle to engage the enemies, the arrows will start to fly. So what does this mean practically? Well, I think, I think one possible application is just simply have a wartime mentality, a spiritual wartime. Other people aren't our enemy. The evil one is our enemy. And so we need to enter each day like a soldier preparing for battle. We need to strap on that armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Maybe we memorize that and pray through it. Um, that armor, each piece of the armor describes some gospel blessing that God has given us by his grace, his power at work in us. And as we remind ourselves of what God has done and for what purpose, we tend to go through our day more intentional. Maybe it's a treating every temptation you experience as a spiritual attack. Do you think of your temptations in that way? Or do you think of them as just options, choices that you might make, right? Uh, a harmless pleasure. But if the spiritual battle is real, it's more than that. They're flaming arrows. Take your temptations seriously. Use the Lord's Prayer as an outline for your prayers. And when you get to that part of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that's a spiritual warfare prayer. Jesus taught us to pray it. Think through specific ways in which you're tempted. And pray and ask God's help against the tactics of the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ask God for protection, specific areas of your life that you sense are vulnerable to attack at the time. Missional significance requires engaging in a spiritual battle. We are fellow soldiers in the mission. Well, let's continue on. Uh, verses 26 to 28, Paul explains uh, uh, that Epaphroditus almost died from a sickness while he was there visiting Paul, but that he has recovered now and Paul wants to send him back home to them. And then he says in verse 29, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So again, the context the Philippians were motivated to serve Paul because as Paul started churches, he started their church, right? They only existed because of his mission to them. They only existed as believers because of his mission to them. And so they partner with him in extending the gospel to others. They send him out like a missionary. And then, and then when Paul had personal needs, they sent Epaphroditus to help. They helped him multiple times. Paul loved Epaphroditus because of his ministry to Paul during Paul's time of need and because it nearly cost Epaphroditus his life. And so you see examples from all of these parties involved. The Philippian church, Paul, Epaphroditus, all of them are putting one another's interests before their own. But this concern for one another happened because of the fourth principle. Deep fellowship 
is forged in the fire of mission together. Deep fellowship is forged in the fire of mission together. Flyboys is a movie. It's been out, I don't know, 2006, I think. It's a movie about World War I and these pilots from America that were serving with the French Air Force before the Americans entered the war. So these are American volunteers serving in France. And they're a diverse group, right? There's a Texas rancher, a man from Nebraska, there's a black boxer, and there's a rich kid from New York. And uh, at the beginning of the film, the rich New Yorker refuses to share a room with the black pilot whose parents were slaves. But over the course of the movie, as pilots are lost during the war, as they come to one another's aid, there's one scene in which this black pilot saves the New Yorker by shooting down a plane that was riddling his own plane with bullets. As they share a common cause for something bigger than themselves, they form deep friendship. They, do, they form mutual trust and respect for one another. The mission transcended their differences. It brought them together and it changed them. The kind of unity and fellowship and care that Paul has been describing in Philippians 2 is a whole lot easier when we're serving together in the cause of Christ when it's all about Jesus and what he's wanting to do in the world. And we get to join him in that. When you see someone putting themselves out there for Christ, bearing fruit in ministry, it's a whole lot easier to appreciate them, to encourage them, to bless them. And I think short of this, you see it all the time. Inevitably, we end up fighting over something, right? We fight over the color of the carpet. We don't have a lot of carpet. We fight over masks, politics. Right? Whatever it may be, whatever the issues are, we, we'll just kind of turn on ourselves if we're not focused on something beyond ourselves. So whenever the church turns in on itself, it stagnates, it goes through the motions, but the church has always been renewed through mission. We're not just serving others. In our, the very act of serving others, God is renewing us. And so far, this letter has given us great instruction on what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord, of the gospel. And this passage gives us concrete examples of people who were actually living it out. And by doing so, they showed us that by God's grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit, it's possible. Christian life isn't just a theoretical ideal. And so continue to reflect on Christ's sacrificial service for you. That's the engine. That's, that's what will motivate you to put Christ's interest and in the interests of others over your own. Look for ways to share your lives with others as we encourage one another as disciples. Realize that as you live this way, you're entering a spiritual battlefield. And so take the necessary precautions. And understand that the deep experience of community that we all long for, it only happens as we serve side by side together in God's mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. And Lord, honestly, thank you for countless others like them. Most of them names lost to history who just simply tried to follow you with their lives. They devoted their lives as a living sacrifice to you in view of your mercies for them. So Lord, compel us by the love of Christ, that we would love you and love others in your name. Lord, 
would we be controlled by Christ's love so that knowing that one died for, for all, we have died. Help us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Lord, help us to no longer see anyone according to the flesh any longer. But because of the work of the gospel, Lord, there's a new creation. And so, Lord, help us to be your ambassadors. Fill us with a passion to beseech others in view of your mercies to be reconciled to God because you made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.